Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. It's great to have you and your brilliant questions with me for this, the final stop in season one. You probably know this already if you're regular listeners, uh, but just in case you don't, I'm going to say it again. The new podcast starts next week. Season two is nearly upon us. We've been working hard, Paul and I, to get it right. It's the same style, same substance, same tone, I think, uh, but we've broadened the canvas and we hope you love it. Big thanks to everyone who's joined my Patreon site. Uh, It's your help and support that makes these free podcasts possible and free. So thank you again. Okay, it's time for the final episode of Season 1. So cue the music. One million years of history. One hundred locations. One and a half million downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me to listen to this story. From your comments, I know that some of you listen as you travel to work. Others have their earphones in walking the dog. Some sit down to lunch and have us for company. Others are cosied up in bed. However and wherever you listen, it's been wonderful having you along for the journey. And as you've all been part of it, for this final episode, it felt fitting and proper to get all of you in on the act, or as many as possible. So many thanks for all your questions. They've come in from right across the globe. And we've ended up with mountains of them. You've got to be careful what you ask for, after all. So without further ado, we better kick off the last stop on my love letter to the British Isles. When we talked about how to wrap up the series and decided we should have a listener's special, you immediately said, I want to answer the questions live. No research beforehand. Well, yeah, that's partly because I'm terribly lazy. <laughs> <laughs> never never did like homework. Um, but really, I just, I like the thought of it. Uh, I, like the, I like not knowing what, because part of the fascination with, with something like this is I know why these places are of interest to me and I know what they make me think about but of course the locations and the ideas make other people think other things Uh, and that's the joy of it because those are ideas and and connections that I wouldn't make on my own Uh, and I like I like just getting them full force right off the cuff Uh, so rather rather than go through it and pick out the easiest questions or whatever I just thought it'd be nice to to hear them as if they were coming in live, really. So it's, we're going to do this as live, as they call it. So, you know, we have we have had these questions in advance, but I'm getting them as though they've just dropped into my inbox. So it's it's fresh. OK, I hope you got supplies with you because we have been sent a mass of questions. Well, well, that's brilliant. I mean, it's 100 episodes. If Even if we only had one question per episode, that would still be 100 questions. So, yeah, I suppose we were asking for trouble, but it's good. OK, to kick off the process... Here's one from an Australian who lives in Canberra and listens to the podcast on his dog walk. (laughs) He says, Amongst my favourite moments was listening to your episode on James Cook and as you made mention of his botanist, Joseph Banks, we were walking down Bank Street, the road named after him here in Canberra. Oh, perfect. Anyway, there's not a question in there, but I love the idea that your podcast is the one of choice for dog walkers. And how incredible it is that the tendrils of history stretch right around the world. That's just, that's perfect. And the fact that there was that lovely synchronicity of of us talking about banks and and while that that listener, what was the name? Andy. And while Andy was walking down uh, Bank Street, that's just absolutely perfect. Uh, And it does, yes, apart from anything else, it shows how... We're sort of held together by threads that wind all around the globe, you know, like a ball of string. And the strings make connections between us. 
And how perfect is that, that you were sitting doing the podcast with me, Paul, in London, and I'm in Stirling, and a string goes out, and it goes all the way out to somebody who's walking down a street named after the, the explorer botanist that we're talking about. I suppose it makes the point, and it's that there's something universal about the love letter. Yeah. You know, that you don't even have to be living here for it to tug at the heartstrings and to be reminded of the long story. We, we keep quoting this figure of a million years, but this long story that holds us all together. Yeah, connections spanning history, place and time. Amazing, isn't it? I just, I just love the idea that we, re- we record this and then someone as far away as you can get from here, well, or, or, well almost Canberra, Canberra, Australia is about as far away from here as you get before you're on, on the way back round, <laughs> back to the beginning. And that's just, that's just lovely to know that something we were doing has been listened to and enjoyed so far away. I, I couldn't be more pleased. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, next question. I'm just doing the first names of people. Mm-hmm. So this one's from Ewan. Which three people would you have at a dinner party and where is it taking place? Oh, goodness, Ewan. Um, gosh, you know, I, I kicked off the, the whole idea behind this love letter by saying it's, you know, when you get these questions that come out of a, a clear blue sky about favourites, you know, people used to say to me, where are the places we should go? And I would, as often as not, I couldn't think of anywhere when I was stopped in the street. And so I wrote the book. But that's that. those questions, like your top three people, right? Okay, let me just let me just think about that. Um, uh, I would definitely uh, include. Well, I sometimes I, sometimes I would answer that question by saying that I would have Jesus Christ, the Buddha, and Muhammad. I would quite like to talk to the founders of the three big religions, uh, and to and to stand to find out basically how they think it's gone. <laughs> How, how do you think? How do you think it's going so far, lads? I would say. Uh, so that would that would that would always be one, but then, I suppose it's it's a love letter to the to the British Isles, isn't it? So I would have someone from Scarabray. I've always loved the idea of the Neolithic village on Orkney that's called Scarabray. And I would love the opportunity to talk. Obviously, there'd have to be some kind of magical translator going on. Whatever language they spoke would have been the ancestor of the of the Gaelic language, probably, or, or similar, or an ancestor of the of the Pictish language, whatever. And I would find out what they were doing on Orkney at that time, because that would be the person that could say what the Nessa Brodgar was for, what the stones of Stennis were built to honour, the Ring of Brodgar, all of it, I would say to that person, what was Orkney thinking at that time? Uh, I would want to speak to one of the first people back into this part of the world after the ice retreated at the end of the last ice age, somebody who spent time in Glen Lyon and knew the Fortingall U when it was just a sapling. I would like to, again, through the magic of some kind of translator, I would like to hear that voice and to get an impression of what the place meant to that population, that tiny ghostly population, only the shadows of which remain for us to ponder. So I would want someone who was part of that first cohort. So that's two. Um, Who else? I would like to talk to the person who I've I've spoken at great length at times about the my first archaeological dig, and at Loch Doon in Ayrshire, and how the director there showed me where he had found where someone knelt down seven or eight thousand years ago. Excavation of the flint scatter showed where the person's knees and toes had got in the way of all the little flakes of flint, so that we could see where someone knelt down. I'd like to bring that person back out of the shadows and see who it was. Wow. Because that was the that was really the person that made me want to be an archaeologist. I was already studying it at university by then, of course. But I think if I hadn't had that visceral experience, uh, other things might have happened. But but that experience of seeing what archaeology could do persuaded me that that was going to answer some of the questions that I had. I'd just like to see what that who that person was. Just get a look at them. Imagine getting a look at that that person. 
and trying to imagine the world that they lived in. So, so there you go. I've accidentally, uh, just off the top, gone for people all, all in that part of the British Isles, which we know as Scotland. But of course, back then, there was no such place. It was just the most northerly extreme of the peninsula, I suppose. And my answer is driven, of course, by the fact that I've always wanted to get back into the back into the dim and distant past. Gosh, where do you where do you take these people for a dinner party? It would have to be outside, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, this is this is a, this is a love letter to the British Isles. So, so without a doubt, maybe we would do it, or maybe we would do it in Scarabray. Maybe that inhabitant of Scarabray would invite us into one of those houses, and we could sit round the fire, set in one of those square stone settings. Uh, and share whatever food was the day-to-day food of the people of Scarabray. And if nothing else, even if there wasn't much in the way of conversation, it would just get me give me the opportunity maybe to look at them, see what their faces were like, see what their hands looked like, hands made of that kind of hard life. Uh, and at the very least, maybe I could listen to them talk amongst themselves. Wow, brilliant. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I think that is one question down, <laughs> and we're like... We're going to be here a while, Paul. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, here's one from Evie. Do you like to write historical fiction, King Oliver? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a reference there to all the letters that I was getting for a while. Um, I still get some, and, uh, and every now and again one would come addressed to the King of Scots or the King of Scotland, which always would make me smile. Yeah, I, well, I, I do. I've got a novel out there. It's called Master of Shadows. Um, it's a story set against the backdrop of the siege of Constantinople when the erstwhile Christian city of Constantinople finally was overwhelmed by a besieging Muslim uh, Seljuk Turkish army led by uh, Mehmet II, uh, the, the Seljuk Sultan. And it's a real, it's a real historical event. Of course, it was. It was one of the most um, shattering and epoch-ending moments in European history, uh, and the aftershocks, to some extent, I suppose, are still being felt to this day. As a story, I think the fall of Constantinople um, moves me in a way that a, a certain kind of story does. Uh, last stands, contemplating what it is that people will do when they're backed into a corner and they can't run and their their only options are either to fight or to surrender. And I've never been in that situation, but it fascinates me to think about that situation and to wonder how I would react, how I would respond. And and writing the fiction around it gave me the opportunity to, to contemplate what that feeling would be, being cornered, being besieged, uh, and then finally accepting that the place was about to be overwhelmed. What do you do? Do you enjoy the actual process of sitting down to write fiction? Yeah, I'd, I've always I've always enjoyed writing on in the space between fact and fiction. Uh. I've always enjoyed contemplating those questions that certain places ask of us, and but for which we might never have definitive answers. But I still, having accepted that, I still think it's valid to to speculate and to contemplate. I think it's part of being human. I think it's part of being. We're, 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 we've always wanted stories. The human, we're united by that. Uh, people, I think, long before people told each other facts, they told each other fiction. And um, yes, I enjoy I enjoy writing in that way. Okay, so two similar questions here. Emma's is, if you could go back in time to any period in history in the British Isles, which one would you go to and why? And Oscar asks, one week in pre-1900 world, where and when are you going? One week in pre-1900 world? Gosh, okay. I'll do, I'll do, um, I'll do uh, the, the, the first one first. I usually... And I, I kind of addressed it, I think, in that dinner party question. Neolithic Orkney is a big, a favourite destination of mine. However, uh, I would say, given one shot in the time machine, I would go back to Haysborough, the best part of a million years ago, 
uh, and look at that little family that were that were walking about on the soft sediment of what was then the banks of the River Thames when it entered the North Sea in Norfolk rather than where it enters the sea now. And I wouldn't need to interact with the people necessarily. I would just like to see what they looked like because it would appear that given the timescale, they had to be of that that mark, which we know as homo antecessor, which is pioneer man and woman. So they're not us. They're different. They're a different species. They're a different breed of dog. And I would like just, it would be enough just to watch them. Just to see what their faces were like, what their bodies were like, how they walked. Uh, we know from the footprints at Haysborough that there were youngsters there. How did they regard and interact with their children? You know, was it a family group? All of that. So in, in my in my one trip in, in, the, in the big time machine, I go back to Haysborough and watch those footprints being made. Splash, splash, splash. Um... Pre-1900 world. Well, I've written at length over the years and thought and spoken at length about the First World War. And the First World War, I think, is the most significant event in all of human history. I think there's the world before the First World War and there's the world after the First World War. And famously and appropriately, the First World War has been described as a set of iron railings that separate one world from another, which is to say that from our position, we can see through the railings to the past, but we can never go there again. What's that opening line to Rebecca? Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. We can see the world before the First World War in a sense, but we can never touch it again because we're separated by the man-forged railings that are the First World War. And so we say that, that the world was different then, that the First World War changed everything. The First World War gave us irony, that very British or, or perhaps very European sense of if you think this is bad, <laughs> you haven't seen nothing yet. If that kind of mindset came out of the First World War, I would go back, let's say, to 1899 into that pre-First World War world and maybe spend enough time there to get a sense of if it really was different if people thought differently, understood differently, and if so, how? Okay, Charles, how has the love letter to the British Isles changed you? Oh, Charles, good one. My experience over the last, it's about 20 years really, that I've been involved in making television programmes, often about the British Isles, and writing books. It's, it's more than 20 years now, actually, but let's say 20 years. <clears throat> and I've absolutely been changed by that experience. I think I always would have been someone, I grew up in a family where, you know, well, for all sorts of reasons, but we took most of our holidays. And when I was growing up in Britain, we didn't go abroad. So, and my dad was very fond of the Highlands of Scotland, for example. And so I, I became familiar with, with the homeland and I did love it. I loved the way it looked. Apart from anything else, and I, and I liked, I enjoyed the stories that I heard, so that laid the groundwork. But it, the last twenty years were an intensifying of that process, where I felt as if I was being whipped around the British archipelago on a magic carpet. I saw so much of it so quickly. We would film a series of Coast, for example, or I would make a series like a Sacred Wonders of Britain, or or a History of Ancient Britain. And I would get whipped around. You know what it's like when you're on yeah. a when you're a documentary shoot. You're all over the place. And I thought, you know, no one else is getting the opportunity to see so many odd little places one after the other. So I, I, I appreciated quite early on that I was in a very privileged position. And I still maintain to this day that I, there won't be many people who've seen more of the British Isles than me. <laughs> I've been all around the islands, for example. Yeah. Islands that you've really got to make a considerable effort to get to. Islands to which boats don't actually go unless you charter them. The the kind of things you just wouldn't do unless a a TV production was paying for it. And in answer to the question, it changed me because it it just intensified by orders of magnitude how much I love the place. Everything I do is fired by love of place. It's not a patriotic, flag-waving, nationalistic Love. It's just love of landscape. 
fascination with landscape and then as, as an archaeologist, you know, having that understanding that literally buried beneath our feet are the earlier pages of the book, of the story, of what it has meant to inhabit this part of the world. So telling the story of the love letter to the British Isles has, has just been a kind of a, a distillation of an intense experience. It's 20 years of experiences distilled down into what I consider to be 100 of the brightest lights. The lights that remain illuminated when I lie in my bed at night with my eyes closed. It's these places that I think about. Your line about how history is buried beneath all our feet seems to strike such a chord at the moment. All the excavations that are happening because of HS2, in places archaeologists wouldn't normally be digging, yeah. are throwing up amazing finds left, right and centre, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, didn't they, just, didn't they just find the biggest expanse of Roman mosaic, in, you know, in London just just recently? Just yeah. And it, it's that, it's that, because you sometimes say, oh, well, but now they'll have found everything. We must have found everything by now. There won't be much left. But then you get that realisation that actually, no, everything is still there in a sense. Everything that ever was. It hasn't gone anywhere. You know, the only stuff that's out is whatever made it onto a couple of satellites that got fired into outer space. The rest of everything is still here somewhere. And gradually, however ephemeral, it, it turns up sooner or later. Okay, here's one from Elizabeth. Neil, if you were to be king for a day, which one... From the past, would you choose to be and why? Elizabeth, that's such a a dread question. Which king to pick? I suppose you, you immediately, your mind, if you're interested in British history, your mind immediately goes to people like Henry VIII, Robert the Bruce, um, Edward I. You know, there's, there's big landmark figures, but one of the places in the love letter of the British Isles was Brunanborough, which is a, a battle an apocalyptic battle that was fought in 937 between Athelstan, king of the Anglo-Saxons, and a rainbow alliance of Scots and Vikings and others that came down from the north, gathering people along the way. And the, the two armies clashed. And in, in the most fascinating way, we don't know where Brunanburgh happened. There's lots of contenders. It may have happened somewhere kind of on Merseyside, Merseyside, for various reasons, Vikings came in from Ireland and took part, and and they might have they might have come in, having crossed the Irish Sea, they might have come in on a river like the Mersey. So, so there are some reasons for thinking the two armies might have come together there, but we don't know. Neil, can I just stop you there for one sec? Because we we've had a few questions on this, mm. and they were wondering, do you think we'll ever find any evidence of the battle there? Well, I I think. The balance of probability is that it is it, by the mercy. I think that is right. You know, there have been finds of, of large amounts of, say, you know, uh, uh, arrowheads. Now, people have been firing metal-tipped arrows for an awfully long time for all sorts of reasons. But I think it does make sense because uh, there was a, it, was a, it was a combined army that came down from the north and it involved people coming from uh, from uh, from Ireland, and they may well have known. If Vikings would have known about the Mersey, they they penetrated landscapes via the rivers using their longboats, and they would have known about the mouth of the Mersey and come in. If it was a large body of people in in boats, they may have come in there. So I think for lots of reasons, place name evidence that it could be in in the vicinity of the River Mersey. Although, in the same way that Arthur, well, it's not the same, but, you know, Arthur's claimed by Cornwall, it's even claimed by the Scots, claimed by the, the Welsh. Uh, you know, no one seems to be in agreement about where the real Arthur was, where his Camelot was and all the rest of it. And I think it's because Arthur matters. People want Arthur to be theirs. And I think because the consequences of Brunanborough were so great... For one thing, it was remembered always as the Great War or the Great Battle. Such was the death toll. In bloody times, it managed to be remembered as especially gory. And so because it had been of such significance, I think all sorts of people in later generations, they claimed it. And I think that has blurred the facts about where it actually took place. So we might never get the definitive answer, but I think I think the likelihood is 
it's somewhere in that area, in the vicinity of the Mersey, somewhere. And in answer to the question about the king, the Scottish king, Constantine, he was a very successful king and he he reigned for decades and he withdrew from Brunanborough. It was a Pyrrhic victory, Brunanborough, like two dogs badly hurt in a fight. They withdrew, the sides withdrew from one another. Athelstan of the Anglo-Saxons is generally credited with the win, but at terrible cost. And and it definitely did. The battle, Athelstan had wanted to assert his authority over the whole island of Britain. We could have been on a, on a destiny to one place, one kingdom. But Brunanborough, it's, it checked Athelstan's overall ambitions, really. He won the battle, but what crystallised in that moment was that there would always be a smaller, poorer kingdom in the north, out of reach of dominance from the south, and there would always be a larger, richer kingdom in the south that was England. So the destinies of England and Scotland, in a manner of speaking, were set in train at Brunanborough. And Constantine, the Scottish king, he withdrew and pulled back at, at a time when no one else could have made... He lost his own son. His son died at Brunanborough, according to the annals. And sometime in the aftermath, he withdrew from the throne. And he went away to live in a cave. <laughs> Somewhere, I think, possibly around St Andrews, uh, which was a centre of, of Christianity. And he went over there and lived some kind of quiet, withdrawn, monastic life to the end of his days. And it, it may have been in part a consequence of all that he had lost at Brunanborough. Wow, tragic. Um, yeah, and, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a tragic figure, but again, he's so... There's, we don't know as much about him as we should. He's not a king that we know everything about. We've just got a sketch of a life, really. So there you go. That'll be my answer to that question. Constantine of the Scots. Okay, here's another question. Does Neil think the high-status warrior buried in Repton Churchyard was the infamous Ivar the Boneless? Yes, I do. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Um, Ivar the Boneless, yes. Uh, Repton is 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 in the love letter because of the crypt beneath the church, actually, which is regarded as a an almost unique survival of another world, really. Betjeman called it holy air encased in stone. And it has that feeling of when you descend the steps, the, the, the steps worn as though by a river, but it's a river of pilgrims' feet and not a river of water. The, the steps are worn almost smooth and you descend into this other time or, or you, your imagination can trick you into thinking you're in another time and in another world. But yes, the, the Biddles, uh, husband and wife team, excavated around Repton, I think in the 70s, and they found all sorts of evidence of... There's a mass Viking grave around a central grave. And the central grave seems to have been of someone of great significance. And the, it looks as though Viking dead from elsewhere, previously buried in other locations, may have been exhumed and gathered so that they could be buried around this individual. So there's a focal point for a, for a mass burial over a period of time. Repton was the capital of the kingdom of Mercia, which was one of the kingdoms that the Viking Mikkel Heathen Hera, the great heathen army, came in the ninth century and knocked over and dominated. And the, a great burial of someone of great importance was made at Repton by Vikings. I think there'd be very good reasons for thinking that the the hero at the centre of that that ritual deposit is uh, is Ivor the Boneless, the great Viking warrior. It's brilliant to know that this fascinating Viking character is there. Absolutely, there's another. There's, there's I mean, there's the Repton warrior, is a is a separate burial at Repton, uh, which is a burial of a big man. Uh, and he, he had suffered a catastrophic wound, it would appear, somewhere around his upper thigh, into his groin, perhaps severing his femoral artery so that he bled out. Um, he, also, um, uh, he was buried with, a, I think it's a boar's tusk over his pelvis, uh, as though it might be some kind of nod to the fact that the wound that killed him emasculated him. So he was maybe kind of very badly damaged in that midsection. 
but big man buried with a sword, uh, a sword in its sheath. Um, so there's all sorts of. It seems to be telling us something, but we're not entirely sure what. But there's the, the Repton warrior is a is a figure of note, uh, also buried it in that churchyard. Okay, this next email isn't a question, but it's from Tony, who studied history at Winchester University, and she wants to let you know the podcast has reignited her passion for the subject, and it's also inspired her and her family to visit lots and lots of sites. Oh, that's wonderful! Honestly, that, to know that to know that the love letter has has positively affected people is just the best news ever. You know, we started doing this in the first lockdown because we needed something to cling to, something creative to do and something to distract us, you and me. And, and, the, and the fact that it has rippled out and, and touched people is just, it's really special. I've just sent, I've just sent you a photo of Tony and, the, and her and her family have got Bambra Castle behind, behind. Well, let me see. Oh, hang, hang on, hang, hang on, hang on. Let me look at that. Oh, Yes. That's wonderful, and and that people have gone off on pilgrimages was really my hope. I couldn't be more I couldn't be more delighted. Bamborough Castle, you know, that's one of those. I mean, even even for me, that's one of those special places amongst the special places because it's in the vicinity of Lindisfarne. It's close by Lindisfarne, and Lindisfarne, like Iona, one of the Holy Isles of the British Archipelago, one to the east, one to the west, and Lindisfarne's just a fantastic, a fantastic place. Bambara Castle is a wonderful place with a thousand years of history, echoing back to Igododon, which is the long poem that, that tells about another apocalyptic battle as the in, indigenous Britons tried to hold back the, the you know the Anglo-Saxon advance. And it's just a it's just a fantastic, a fantastic place. It's just beautiful to look at. Bambara Castle, the beach below Bambara, the, the island of Lindisfarne, such a stunningly attractive places and just that just that idea that people have been uh, reminded of of how much they enjoy history is all I could have hoped for the the podcast here's a similar email from Eddie he lives near the Fortingal U and after hearing the podcast went there to stand beneath its branches and contemplate perfect. all the history it's seen perfect okay Derek uh what place in the UK has the oldest name? Oh, well, oh gosh, the name Britain is is old beyond reach, which has always been a fascination for me, because we live in a world now of national identities made of Wales and Scotland, Ireland, both. North and South and England, and there's you know there's 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 nationalist sentiment f- focused around all of those, and what's enduringly interesting to me is the idea that Britain is the older name by far. It, it would appear obviously when the Romans came and colonised two thousand years ago, they must have it would appear asked the locals what the island was called and it would appear that the answer was something like Pretain with a P rather than a B and that then inspired the Romans to come up with a a version which was Britannia they were echoing or honouring the original name in their own name for their own province and so Britain Britain, Pradain, is older. That's a bit of a sleight of hand by me. <laughs> uh, I cannot begin to imagine how many place names in Britain must contend for oldest. You know, there are some... Uh, the Thames, the rivers on the south and east of Britain often start with a t. Thames, Tyne, Tees. And there's th- linguistic reasons for thinking that it's because... When people came back into this part of the world after the last ice age, they were speaking languages that derived originally from Sanskrit, the Proto-Indo-European languages, 
And in Sanskrit, the word for a big surging river is Tarvas. And it's possible that those people referred to all of those rivers that they found, you know, that they would have encountered first, coming up from the south and east within Europe and then encountering our part of the world. They would have encountered those rivers first. And they may just have been referring to all of them as Tarvas, surging rivers. So something like Thames, also Tamar, you know, the river that separates um, Cornwall and Devon. You know, that's why they all start with a T. So, a name like Thames, Tamar, and Britain are echoes of something that's very, very old. It's interesting with these questions, isn't it, that they throw up a subject, but as you start talking, the initial question leads to another, and then another, and suddenly can take you anywhere. Yeah. It's the great depth, it's always about the great depth for me. Because people are so passionate, you know, obviously I live in Scotland and, you know, Scottish nationalism is, you know, is so dominant and domineering up here. And Welsh nationalism, similarly, you know, there's massive passion around Wales and Welshness and English. For all sorts of reasons, it's less sort of politically correct for English people to celebrate Englishness in that way, but that's unfair and, and it, that, that pride and passion about being English is, is also there, and Irish. And it's a great fascination to me to know that it's a relatively thin veneer <laughs> over something much, much older. You know, when I go back to the stories and the places that mean the most to me, it's of a British archipelago that was a patchwork of tribes and then little kingdoms. And it didn't become, it didn't harden and, and fossilise into and calcify into Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales until much later. It's the depth of history that here that fascinates me. OK, I'm going to, I've got a, I've got a shorter question here now and then I'm going to try and zip you on so we can get a few more questions because we have got like masses of them. OK, this is from Hellvector. Single malts or blends? Oh. And the age type of cask. And finally, do you drink scotch at all? I do. I do love uh, the taste of whiskey. Uh, I don't drink too much of it because I find it pretty potent stuff, which it is. Uh, In an ideal world, I go for single malt from the West. I like things like um, Talisker. I like the the, the, the malts from Isla. Uh, I like the dark, peaty, uh, you know, the ones that, you know, that are almost look like, you know, almost look like uh, stewed tea in colour. Those ones that taste of seaweed and the sea and the peat. So, yes. Although, having said that, you know, there are some lovely blends. Um, that iconic green bottle with the yellow label that you see in the background of... Uh... Any Hollywood movie that features a bottle of whiskey, it's almost inevitably Justerini and Brooks because it's such a such an identifiable bottle. Uh, and then the you know um, the Macallan is a paler thing, a, a softer a softer malt, and the the Tayside malts that are very pale in colour. Some of them almost little more than water in terms of their colour, very very lightly coloured. It's all good, but I, I would plump for a Talisker. So this is from Jim. What do you think is the greatest man-made structure in the UK? The greatest man-made structure in the UK? I'm going to go with Silbury Hill, which is the largest uh, man-made prehistoric mound in Europe. It's vast. It's part of that ritual landscape of Avebury and Stonehenge and West Kennet and the rest of the great uh, iconic Neolithic and that Neolithic Bronze Age landscape down in Wessex. Um, Silbury Hill, there's various... I, I had the opportunity, it had been burrowed into in the past. People had gone into looking for treasure. There were always legends that there was a golden coffin at the heart of it and people burrowed down from the top and burrowed in from the side and their tunnelling had compromised the integrity of the structure and it was, it was starting to collapse like a flan in a cupboard. It was, it was falling in on itself and, and, and work was done to, to shore it up from the inside. But while the tunnels were fully excavated 
and before they were backfilled, I went in, I had the opportunity to go in and stand right at the bottom, right at the heart of Silbury Hill. Brilliant. In a space that no longer exists. You know, it was borrowed from the from the chalk and now it's been restored. So that space that I inhabited for a few minutes is gone now. Uh, but there's all sorts of theories that it, it may have been being built for so long, people turning up and adding to it like layers on a wedding cake year after year, generation after generation. Some audacious scholars have suggested that it took so long to build. It was as though Henry VIII had commissioned the Millennium Dome on the day of his coronation. The Silbury Hill may gradually have been growing in that part of the world, not just for years, not just for decades, but for hundreds of years, until finally some or other generation decided that enough was enough, and they walked away from it forever. Okay, one from James. If there was one thing that you hope listeners would take away from your podcasts, what would it be? Uh, reassurance. You know, the story's a million years in the telling. It hasn't just taken in Homo sapiens, it's taken in Homo antecessor, Neanderthals, even other variations on our on the idea of what it is to be human and alive. We've been through natural disasters like the Storega Slide, the biggest natural disaster event in the last 8,000 years, the great wave that, that came across the North Sea and washed in land for 20 or 30 miles, killing and destroying everything. Uh, there have been earthquakes, there have been invasions, there's been plague, there's been war and war and war again, industrial revolution, enlightenment, times of depravity, witch hunts and terrible religious-inspired cruelties. We've been through everything and survived. And knowing that, I think, is some reassurance in the face of difficult times that we're living through at the moment, because we've seen it all. And some of us have always survived and moved forward. And there's some of that reassurance to come from knowing about a lot of history, good, bad and indifferent. Right, here's one for Oliver's tours. A Canadian with Scottish descent is planning a trip and would like to know, is there a special space between Glasgow, Dumfries and Skye to Easter Ross for someone searching for meaning in her Scottish roots. Oh gosh, oh, that's a big that's a big swatch of territory. <laughs> Glasgow, Dumfries, Sky, and Easter Ross. Yeah. Well, given the given the remit there, I'm going to go with um, Iona, the the Holy Isle, tiny little scrap of a thing. It was the base for the the religious community established by Columba. And from there, Christianity spread into mainland Western Scotland. Not for the first time. Christianity had been here longer than that, uh, since the time of the Romans. But after the Romans left, there was a bit of a, a backsliding. Uh, and, but Christianity, you know, washed back in like another wave. But Iona is just a wonderful place. You take a boat probably from Oban. You go across to Mull. You drive across Mull until you get to the western extreme of Mull in a little place called Fianna Fort and you have to park your car there because the next ferry is pedestrian only and you get on this little pedestrian ferry and you go across the sound and you land on Iona this tiny little place that's dominated I suppose by the abbey but it's a, a beautiful bit of landscape as well beautiful colours in the water beautiful pale sand beautiful rock and the grass and a few trees uh, and it's a place of great solace and calm and reflection. And Well, if I was to choose one little place in that, that territory described by our listener, I would, yeah, Iona. Your, your, soul, your soul will thank you for it. This is a message from John, who was diagnosed with bowel cancer and wants to say thanks because the series has helped him through his sleepless nights. Oh, What's the, what's the name again? John. John. Oh, John. Lots of love, John. Uh, that's thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to to feedback in that way. That's lovely to hear, and I can only wish all the best, John. Uh, George, how come there's such negativity elsewhere in our island story? Oh gosh, I do wonder. My I do wonder about that myself all the time. Uh, 
I think I think some of it is uh, is coming from the deluge of information that we're all we're all standing uh, kind of shoulders deep in a in an invisible wave of information all the time, news and social media. There's data coming at us, I think, in unprecedented volumes. Um, and, and many people, myself among them, have lost faith in what can be trusted and what's true and what isn't and what's information and misinformation and disinformation and government orthodoxy and all the rest of it. I think we're bombarded with competing information and narratives all the time and it's very unsettling. There's also been this push to pick a side on every topic, whatever it is. You know, there's there's just a binary choice to be made. And if you're on one side, you're obliged to shout obscenities practically at the other. And it's become very adversarial and very partisan and very divisive. Uh, nationalism in Scotland has done the same thing. You're either in favour of breaking up the United Kingdom or you're not. And people stand on either side of that barricade and, and hurl abuse. I think we're living in in tempestuous, hot-tempered times. And again, as I've said before many times, for relief from that, I just look back to the past. I look at the landscape. You know, the landscape prevails long after we are gone. The, The landscape, you know, will be here broadly as it appears to us now. And our travails and our struggles will will just be, you know, the, the lightest sketches on the surface of something very, very deep. And for good or bad, right or wrong, that perception calms me down. Okay, right, I'm going to try and whiz you on now. Very difficult, but I'm going (laughs) to... Okay, a great letter from uh, Margaret about uh, Caesar's last breath, really nice. And within it, she's asked, you've walked in some very famous footsteps which were your favourites or gave you most pleasure? Gosh. Well, actually, my, my, my immediate answer to that is John Muir. And I, I've i walked in his footsteps in two different... Well, on both sides of the Atlantic, basically. When I was a, a, a newspaper reporter, oh, way back now, there, for a time I was the deputy editor of the East Lothian Courier, which was a weekly paper based in the town of Haddington to the east of Edinburgh. And part of the territory we covered was Dunbar. And Dunbar was the birthplace of John Muir. And there's a John Muir trail and there's, you know, there's a, a footpath you can walk. And in Dunbar, people are proud of, of John Muir. John Muir is regarded as the father of the National Parks movement in North America. When he was about, I think when he was about 11 years old, his family, his, his dad was what you might call a religious fundamentalist, very strict Christian. He had decided that Dunbar was a, a hotbed of immorality and he moved the whole family out to North America for a new life, a new start. And so John Muir became an American at that point. Later in life, he went on a, a pilgrimage of his own and amongst other places, he spent time in Yosemite, the great valley, the great famous valley and then the high Sierras above it. And he was sort of, he was converted, I suppose, to a new version of of his father's unbending, intolerant religion. And he came to see himself and all all of humanity as just part of a bigger picture of of the natural world. And it it was down to him that, you know, some of the national parks, it wasn't wasn't entirely down to him, but he he was a key player in inspiring Teddy Roosevelt to set aside vast tracts of land as national parks in America. He preserved the redwoods, the great, the giant sequoias. Um, I followed him. I made a documentary about his time in, in North America as well. And so I felt I had seen and spent time in both bookends of his life, I suppose, the place of his upbringing, where he still remembered a bit, and then out in North America, where he's revered. His face wouldn't be out of place on the Mount Rushmore monument, more deserving of adulation than any president, I would say. So there, that's my answer to that one. John John Muir, <laughs> the great John Muir. Okay, one from Peter, who I will mention. He hasn't got a question, but he says the podcast series kept him going 
through his night shift at Tesco. So I like that. I'm great. That's, that's great to hear. Yeah, he's pleased there's the season two, so that's good. And here's another on a similar vein, uh, Dr. Oliver Carpenter, who says, I want to say thank you for joining me inside my helmet on my <laughs> motorbike commute yeah. from Lenham in Kent to the Science Museum in London. <laughs> Fantastic. What, a, what an image, what a thought. Yeah, that is so good, isn't it? Yes, I've been I'm sharing. Just... I've been sharing a crash helmet with someone I don't actually know. <laughs> what an what an intimate thought. Lewis has sent some wonderful photos of his family at Sycamore Gap. I've got them. He says the visit has inspired him to explore more of Hadrian's Wall. They're good pictures. Aren't they fantastic? They are good. That's good pictures. The Sycamore Gap. That that's sometimes regarded as the most photographed tree in the British archipelago. <laughs> and it, it's that's Hadrian's Wall, obviously, um, and it, it's a brilliant illustration of the way in which the the Romans just uh, worked with the landscape. You know that the the wall just comes down into that dip and then up again and around the other side and carries on. It, it's probably it's in Northumberland. It's probably the most photogenic part of Hadrian's Wall, uh, the most audacious and expensive boundary that the Romans built anywhere in their empire was Hadrian's Wall. And that tree was made even more famous by the Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, <laughs> because the, the pair of them land at the White Cliffs of Dover. And after a gentle stroll later the same day, they hop across Hadrian's Wall <laughs> at Sycamore Gap. That's a heck of a walk. Um, and so it was, uh, it was briefly Im immortalised by that. But it's just, if you're going to go for, for students over or aficionados of Roman history, if you want to go and catch a glimpse of the splendour of Hadrian's Wall, that's the location, and those pictures are more than doing it justice. Well done, Lewis. It's extraordinary that that the, it's still there. <laughs> well, as I say, the Ro nowhere else in their empire did the Romans go to such lengths to draw a line and say, this is ours. It's a considerable statement. It was never a. It was never really. It wouldn't have been practical to man the whole wall and you know like a fortress and keep people out. It was porous. There were gates in it, and forts, and it was really a means of trying to have a, a like a, a customs line, so that people moving north and south through the wall, the Romans could tax them, uh, you know, and keep track of movements. It was a statement of of territorial claim. It was a. This is ours. South of this is Roman Britannia. North is is not. Uh, and it, it was a defensive structure insofar as it was a statement. But really, it was it was more of a means of, of regulating movement north and south. And they, they went to some lengths. The three Roman legions that were in Britain were, were, were tasked at, at some point with the build. And, uh, and, and there it stands. At, at one point, it would have been lime mortared along its length. So it would have been white. So it would have looked even more obvious in the landscape. Okay, this one is from Holly in New York, a librarian. New York? And, yeah, and... Hello, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> Will you perhaps, in the next series, visit and discuss other influential writers and artists throughout the ages in the UK in yeah. relation to their surroundings? Yes, yes. I mean, um, we, uh, Paul, it's probably fair to say we're, we're going to do... We'll continue with the theme of, of places that, that seem of great significance and great import. It's going to be the story of the world in a hundred moments, basically. So rather than... I mean, I, I would say that there was, there was reference to and a, and, a, and a wider feel, a hope, to the love letter to the British Isles. It wasn't only about Britain in terms of its overall feel, but this, this season two is going to have the whole world for our canvas. And yes, it will be about other writers, other, other characters, other stories through about 5,000 years of world history. So hopefully those who've enjoyed the tone of the, of the love letter to the British Isles will, will hear echoes of the same tone running through what comes next. OK, we've barely made a dent on the letters, but I'm going to wrap things up with one final question. Uh, here's one from Rona. The term Great Britain is often used with the word great meaning mighty, powerful or fabulous. However, my granddad told me it is named great 
as it is the biggest island in the British Isles, as in Gran Canary. Can you clear this up for me? Well, yes, um, that is right. It's a it's a geographical. I struggled with it because for for some of the aforementioned reasons about about nationalism and, and present day politics. When you talk about Great Britain, it does ruffle some feathers and put hackles up on some necks. But it's a geographer's uh, convention to name an archipelago after the biggest island in the group. You know, so it is called the British Isles because the the island that is Britain is 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 the physically larger lump. That is just a convention. You know, Minorca and Majorca, it's big whale and little whale. Maj, Orca, Min, Orca, and Majorca is the one that is the, <laughs> you know, that's the bigger, it's just the bigger space. And yes, Gran Canaria, that, that is right. It has come to mean different things to different people. Um, when James the Sixth of Scotland succeeded Elizabeth the First as in, so to become James the Sixth of Scotland, first of England, he'd been raised as a Protestant. He was christened Catholic, but he was raised Protestant, and the fact that he was Protestant made him acceptable to succeed Protestant Elizabeth on the throne. So, because he was a reformed king, you know that was crucial in him being an acceptable candidate for the population. And he came south to London with all sorts of highfalutin ideas about a greater Britain by which he meant he wanted all of the peoples to be united as one. Scots, English, Welsh, Irish, whatever. He wanted the whole, he wanted it to be one place. Um, so he talked about a greater Britain. And it, it was he commissioned the, the flags. He had designs drawn up for what eventually produced the Union flag, bringing together the, the flags of the nations uh, it didn't. It didn't actually see fruition in his time. The idea of a Greater Britain, but it was certainly his intention. And the crowns were united. The thrones were united formally at that point in 1603, and then subsequently the parliaments were united in 1707, so that the Scottish and English parliaments were dissolved and a parliament of Great Britain in their place. But yes, that's a long, tortured answer. But that, that is it. It's a geographer's convention to to name an archipelago after the biggest lump. Okay, Neil, we have done masses and gone over, but I'm going to have to draw it to a close now. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, brilliant. Honestly, Paul, I could, it's such a treat. Even when I don't, if if I haven't given full some answers or or if people don't agree with the answers, I I think just the message that I want to get across is just that the pleasure, the joy of feeling, you know, that coming together with people of like mind you know, that are brought together by the podcast because basically when it comes right down to it, we all just share a love of landscape, a love of the stories, uh, and we feel, you know, made family by that. It's a lovely feeling. To help support the making of my podcasts, sign up to my Patreon site where you'll get a new and exclusive vodcast every single week. Simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. Check out the series Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. Take a look at my YouTube channel, which is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. It would be great to have your help uh, in building up more and more support. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Big thanks to the whole team who've made this whole series possible. Paul Ratcliffe and I produce it for Fat Belly Films. Malcolm Goldie is the composing genius who sets my voice to music. Oscar CFR does the social media and the YouTube channel versions. Brilliant extra research and edit checks by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Catherine and Trudy sort out the finance. Althorpe Studios have done a sterling job with all the post-production. And last but not least, the artist with the eye, graphics extraordinaire from Paul Plowman. And special thanks to all of you too for all of your questions, encouragement and support and just knowing that you're out there. Plus, as ever, I have to thank the people across history who have made and continue to make these aisles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts Production.
Paul, I'm just going to pop the kettle on. Can you email me all the collated questions so that I can see the ones that we didn't have time for? Coming your way. <laughs>